0: Questions you might have or thoughts you might have, and we'll hit those at the end. We'll take a few minutes. John chapter thirteen, um, and if you remember, last week we spoke about. Well, actually, the last two weeks we've been in the thirteenth chapter of John. We talked about uh, John um, showing the the washing of the disciples' feet. Jonathan spoke about that, and then last week we spoke about why that would have been significant during the Passover, um, that what this Passover means. John has a lot. To say about the last week of Jesus' life. Remember, we said last week, half of the book of John is just the last week of Jesus' life. That's just overwhelming to me. And so uh, he says in John 13 33 My children, I will be with you only a little longer, and I'm giving you a new commandment so you'll know where I am and know who must love one another this is how they will know that you are mine i'd like that to set with us for a second because there's a couple things that stand out to me and this is not really in the message but it certainly is something that we might be able to discuss if it prompts you is the idea number one um that he's talking about some type of shift that's going to happen and notice that he's leading with i'm only going to be with you in this way for a little while longer and I'm giving you a new commandment and what's the first thing he says why he's giving them the new commandment hmm. and who I am. but notice I, I've never really thought about it quite like this he's talking to them about modeling what he so he's just finished washing their feet in fact, if you read the rest of the passage, he's, he's in the middle of washing their feet. Judas hasn't even left the room yet. So I'd like to imagine in my mind he's washing Judas's feet as he's saying this. According to the book of John, it says the devil has already entered into Judas. Now, I don't really care how you like to slice and dice that if you think that's literal, if you think that like the horny-tailed, um, you know, guy with the pitchfork, has jumped into Judas, I really don't care how you slice and dice that. Either way, we can say that Judas has decided and embraced evil. I don't care how how you want to explain it. If you can explain it, then you're better than probably the people in the room because I don't know that they could have explained it. But in the the midst of that environment, Jesus says, okay, things are going to change. But this commandment I'm giving to you so that you'll know where I am. And I'd like to suggest to you, this is not the topic of of the morning. That's not in heaven. He's getting ready to sit at the table with them and bless the bread and the cup and say what? So Jesus is not telling them, "Hey, in case you can't find me, just know that I'm I'm headed up north. <laughs> the Hubble telescope will be able to see me here in a couple, you know, couple thousand years." No, that's not what he's saying. He's giving them an identification of what this is going to look like. So I'd like to begin this morning, we really only have two points to the message this morning. But I'd like to begin with this question. If we were going to rebuild Christianity from the bottom up, what is the foundation upon which we would build? Tosh often, if you know Tosh, you've probably heard her say this, often tells me in her impassioned and honest way, what if God could just start over? Often when we have conversations Where we talk about the racism that exists in the world today, the misogyny that exists in the world today, um, you know, the the various you've seen, the, the persecution that's specifically happening in Pakistan of Christians right now, the Kurdish Christians who were slaughtered in the street. And she says, what if we could just start over? she follows it by something like, and I'll be tribute, like I'll be the one that dies, kill me first, if that's what it takes for God to start the whole thing, to hit the reset. And and I'd like to suggest in that vein of thought, if Christianity did start over, because can we all agree we've kind of screwed it up? Like we've 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 kind of blown it. We've got a picture of God who's angry, retributive and violent. We've got a picture of our religion that says if you don't pray a magic prayer, you can't go to the place on the other side of the sky when you die. But there's people on the other side of the world who've never had the opportunity to hear this idea or pray this magic prayer, and they're going to burn in hell just because of where they were born, which they had no control over. Can anybody sit with that and feel like, yeah, this feels good? to understand, we know that this is, it's got off track at some point. So if we could start over, what would the foundation be? I think Jesus gives us the blueprint for his intent in this passage. That we love one another. The new commandment that we love one another. So there's two points that I want to make today. The first point is, I titled it Part of the Whole, and the reason I titled it Part of the Whole is because when Jesus is talking, he's talking about something that's bigger than you and bigger than me. See, we have to understand, first and foremost, that we are living in a postmodern age. So if you actually study how the, you have postmodernity, which is what we're in, modernity and and at some point around the 1600s, we had this thing that happened called the Enlightenment. The thing that came along with the Enlightenment is what the the inventing of the printing press, where somebody took a perfectly good wine press and decided to put paper on it. Right? I mean, they were making like a a, a really nice cab, and somebody goes, yeah, you know what? Let's put some parchment on this thing and see if we can crank it crank out some uh, some articles. So this thing happened, but in the midst of it, the thing that we don't often recognize happened is individualism happened. Individualism happened. And the reason individualism happened is because we did not, as individuals, have the ability, so nobody could read. If you were to ask me, what is the number one thing that Protestantism, which we're all part of, that Martin Luther, the Reformation, and, and Protestantism gave the world literacy. Literacy is, I think, the number one thing. Because what Martin Luther's big point was, we don't need to listen to what the Pope says. The Bible, sola scriptura, the Bible is our authority. So up until that point for a thousand years, the authority had been the Pope. Nobody could read the Bible. They couldn't read Latin. In fact, the only guy that had tried to translate the Bible into English, this is a really crazy story, um, so this is somewhere around uh, 1350, 1360, he translated the Bible into English, which was heresy, because they believed that God only spoke Latin. Does anybody want to know why they thought God only spoke Latin? Because that was how they kept everybody else, the common people, from reading the text. Only the priests could speak Latin. So if you said that it has to stay in Latin, you don't have the opportunity to approach the text and see for yourself what it says. How do you get to God? You've got to go through the priest, through the pope, through the bishops. And so this guy um, gets the idea that he's going to translate it into English. He dies. They get so ticked off when they find out after he's died that he's translated the first Bible from Latin into English that they dig him up, grind him. Two pieces and burn the pieces that they ground up. That's how mad the Pope was. So the idea that you and I could approach and read the text for ourselves changed the world. And I would suggest to you that if Martin Luther hadn't come up with the idea, you realize we just celebrated his birthday last week, right? Martin Luther, uh, not, more, not Dr. King, the other guy, the guy with the hammer, the nail, and the 95 theses. Uh, so Martin Luther came up with this idea that, no, we don't need a pope. We need to be able to come to God. The Bible is our our authority. And so up until that point, we didn't have Bibles, and we couldn't read Bibles because nobody could read. And so what they did is they translated the Bible into English. It became approachable, and the world became literate. Do you realize what that means? But it also meant what he didn't see coming was when you allow everybody to read the Bible for themselves, Everybody reads John 3.16 and comes up with a different idea of what it means. Up until that point, the Pope got to say what the verse meant. Now, Doug gets to look at it, and Tosh gets to look at it, and Bill gets to look at it. And they all come up with different ideas of what it means. Why? Because now I can read it for myself. So individualism happened, which was a great thing and a horrible thing. Because it birthed what we have now, which is called hyper-individualism. Hyper-individualism says, I'm looking out for me and mine. Hyper-individualism says, I don't care if my neighbors starve as long as I've got a robust 401k. Hyper-individualism actually plays into fear and creates this idea that I would suggest is based out of our faith. That I don't need anybody else but me and Jesus. So even when we get saved, that we this is you know this, but when we get saved, we ask somebody, have you asked Jesus to be your Doug? Personal Lord and Savior. That only would happen. That language would have made no sense to the early church. Because individual individualism didn't exist. And so We, the first thing that I would like to suggest out of this text that Jesus is pointing to is that we're part of a greater whole. We are not isolated individual selves. No separation between human and divine is primary to understand our identity. Additionally, no separation between human and human is equally powerful as a notion and also equally challenging. doesn't mess with you you should read it again no separation between you and god is crucial to you understanding your identity but you will not be able to fully live into your identity until you understand that there's no separation between you and the person sitting next to you and you and the person on the other side of the earth One of the most familiar teachings of Jesus is the great commandment. They came to him and asked him and said, what's the greatest commandment? He says, love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And. As. okay, that's interesting, right? Because what I always thought that meant, I've spent lots of time thinking about this obsessively because I don't think I got it. Maybe you did. But as I thought about it, I thought, "Okay, I'm not getting the second part because the way I always then interpreted it would essentially be that we are hearing the text, love your neighbor as much as yourself. Love the Lord God and love your neighbor as much as yourself. And of course, the next logical question then becomes, but I have to love me first, don't I? Then I can't love my neighbor if I don't. So if I don't love me first, Then how do I love my neighbor? If you listen closely to Jesus, however, there is no as much as in his admonition. It's just love your neighbor as yourself. What it's actually saying is love your neighbor as a continuation of your own being. Love your neighbor because your neighbor is you. Not love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. It doesn't say that. Because if it's love your neighbor as much as you love yourself, then if you don't love yourself, you're not capable of loving your neighbor. Right? Isn't that the logical dispute? And I'm not saying you shouldn't love yourself, but it doesn't say as much as love your neighbor as yourself. Another way to translate this would is simply uh, essentially be love God and love your neighbor because they are you. There is no separation. And it is complete seeing that your neighbor is you that Jesus came to show us. Paul says that the particular way the spirit is given to each person is for the common good. So if you think about even the way that, you know, some are given this gift, some are given this gift, some are given this gift, some are given this gift. I think it's fascinating that we think that's that Paul's talking about a corporate church gathering. That's ludicrous. Paul's not saying uh, Martha Jo is an ear and Linda's an eye. And thank God, hope uh, is afoot. That's not what he's saying. When Paul is talking about we're each various parts of the body, he's talking about humanity. And you know what that means? That means my Muslim brother is a nose and without him, I can't smell. And that means my Buddhist brother is an ear and without him, I can't hear. Sister is a foot, and I can't walk without her. Humanity is the body, not Harvest House Church. That was never the design. And so what Paul is saying is this great idea that the greater whole is, uh, is central to the theme of our faith. The early church fathers and mothers actually called this mutual indwelling. One way to express this, I'm not sure what, there we go. I don't even know what? I, there we go. Yeah. There we go. One way to express this is using the language that Jesus uses. I am in God, God is in you, you are in God and we are in each other. God. And we're in each other. What is Jesus' last prayer for the church? Father, that they may be one as you and I are one. And we think he's talking about church unity so that we can vote on a board seat. Right? We oh, we need to have w- we are one in the spirit. We are one in the Lord. Right? And so we sing that together and that's not the point. What he's saying is that we flow into God and God flows into us because it is the nature of love to flow. As soon as love stops flowing, love dies. We cease to exist in the flow of love as soon as love stops with me. And so what I would suggest communion is to me, I was thinking about this this morning when we were taking the Eucharist, the communion to me is something where I can take of the, uh, the blood and bread and recognize the way God is flowing into me. But if it stops with me, I've not gotten the point of the body. So what I always try and do when I'm taking the Eucharist, so this morning, I first tried to step into the flow that's happening. God, allow me to feel this. Then, God, allow what you're causing me to feel to flow out of me. So I specifically today was engaging in prayer for mothers um, who uh, have their children have died in detention centers at the border. sure what that could feel like. One of the mothers recently, you heard that the child was, they arrested the mother. She tried to tell them her toddler was in the car. They ignored it. The infant died. But as soon as love stops with me, it's not a flow. That's just the way this works. Love is our foundation and our destiny. It's where we come from and where we're going. Paul says, so faith, hope, and love remain. But the greatest of these is St. Augustine says the church consists in the state of communion of the whole world. Wherever we are connected in right relationship, you might say in love. That's another way to just say and when we're connected, it's love. Love is the energy that connects us. That's it. That's what connects us. And in the midst of that, when we are connected, the more we are connected in love with somebody else, in relationship with somebody else, we become part of the bigger whole, which is called the body of Christ. So my Muslim neighbor is just as much a part of the body of Christ as I am. I'm sorry, guys, but it's just reality. If not, we think that we're saying that that Muslim person isn't part of the body. What we're actually saying is Christ is not big enough to be in them the way he is in me. And what ends up happening foundation of all of this is love that's the only way anyone can know god if you never let anyone love you if you have never let love flow through you gratuitously generously undeservedly towards other people you cannot possibly know who god is if you have not let love flow through you generously gratuitously The way we know the love of God is by how we love each other. And so it's the bigger whole. That's the only way that we can know God. Otherwise, God is just a theory, a belief system, an ideal. But God is love is what 1 John 4, 8 says. And so I think the idea becomes not this this thought of demanding, but rather God is saying, I'm inviting you into the mystery of who you already are inside of me. Love is not something you decide to do now and then. Love is who you are. It's our basic foundational building block that holds it all together. If you untether the energy of love from the universe, the universe would cease to exist like that. Really believe that, and I know it sounds like I should be talking at Woodstock, like some peace loving hippie. But the reality of it is, it is that powerful. So. What if love, what if this love your neighbor as yourself, what if this love one another, the new commandment? Can you imagine what it would have felt like for the disciples in the room? We're not spending a lot of time on history today. Can we imagine what it would have felt like for the other disciples in the room for Jesus to say, hey, you know those Ten Commandments, you know the Torah, all the other laws? Here's a new one. This is the one I want you to live by. I no longer want you to worry about holiness. I no longer want you to worry about righteousness. I no longer want you to worry about faithfulness. I no longer want you to worry about stewardship. I just want you to love. That would bother some of you. I actually saw the other day, so some of you are familiar with the, uh, Kirk Franklin and what's going on there, that, that it is just a mess um, that they he spoke out at the Devil Awards two different times, 2016, 2019 uh, on behalf of police brutality, people that uh, the Amber Geiger incident in Dallas, and then he also spoke out on behalf of a policeman that had been killed, and he invited, as he's he's, um, accepting Album of the Year, Gospel Album of the Year, he invites everyone to pray for unity and that the church could be a witness in the midst of this division. When it aired on TV they cut his speech. First, it happened in 2016. He gave this speech. He got a standing ovation in the call for unity. He invited the entire ceremony, the award ceremony, to pray with him. They did this, and they cut it. So he he goes to TBN and the Devil Awards and says, look, this isn't right. Um, they apologize, say it'll never happen again. In 2019, he receives the same award. He gives the speech again, and they cut it again. So he's now – he said, I, I don't want to do – you should read it or you should listen to the statements better than I can give. But he essentially is saying, I don't want to do this, but I cannot in good conscience participate in anything that TBN does or the Dove Awards does until this is rectified. Not an apology to him, but an awareness that the church has a responsibility. And so he tweeted shortly after that and said – God is uh, um, God is love. Love one another. And interestingly enough, the pa- the first person that replied was a very predominant pastor, and they said, "And also hate sin, because they couldn't let it go." Love your neighbor. Well, only only if you hate sin. But isn't that kind of where we've been? That if I told you, don't even worry about sin anymore; just worry about loving your neighbor. That jar us a little bit, wouldn't it? That's what Jesus is doing. He's saying, forget about all these other laws; just love your neighbor. Just love one another. So that's the idea. That's what's happening. So for centuries, Christianity has presented as uh, been presented rather, excuse me, as a system of beliefs. That system of beliefs has supported a wide range of unintended consequences from colonialism to environmental destruction to the subordination of women to the stigma put upon the LGBT community to Islamophobia to in the Catholic Church clergy pedophilia to white privilege. What would it mean for Christians to rediscover their faith not as a problematic system of beliefs? but as a generous way of life rooted in love and compassion that makes amends for its mistakes and is dedicated to the beloved community wherewith we all belong. What would it mean if we recognize that the foundation of it all is love? For centuries, Christians have been presented and presenting God as some supreme being who showers blessings upon insiders who share certain beliefs and proper institutional affiliations. You with me so far? But who then as a aside punishes outsiders with eternal conscious torment in hell if you don't have the right affiliation? Yet Jesus revealed God as one who eats with sinners, welcomes outsiders, and forgives even while being rejected, tortured, and killed. Jesus associated God more with a gracious parent's tenderness than strict authoritarian toughness. He preached that God was to be found in self-giving service rather than self-asserting domination. I need to say that again he preached that god was to be found in self-giving service not self-asserting authority what would it mean for christians to let jesus and his mission lead them to a new vision of god what would it mean for christians to understand experience and embody god as the love uh, excuse me as the loving healing reconciling spirit in whom all creatures live and move and have their being For centuries, Christians and Christianity has presented itself as an organized religion, a change institution, or a set of institutions that projects and promotes a timeless system of beliefs that were handed down. Yet Christianity's actual history is a story of being changed and adapting and growing. This is what John is showing us, the ever-inclusive manner. would happen if we understood the core of Christianity as creative, constructive, and forward leaning. The challenges all institutions, including our own, to learn, to grow, to mature, to deepen, to endure, and to reconcile with God, ourselves, our enemies, and our neighbors. If we are truly Christian, It makes sense to turn to Jesus for the answer. And one of the many radical things, of all the many radical things said and done by Jesus, his unflinching emphasis was upon love. Love is the greatest commandment. This new commandment meant that neither beliefs, nor words, nor taboos, nor systems and structures, nor the labels that ensure mattered most. The greatest of these is love. In this new command, love, I'm actually borrowing this from Brian McLaren in his book, Generous Orthodoxy. In this new commandment, love decentered everything else. Love And then I thought, no, Bill's going gonna, Bill's gonna to call me out if I don't get it right. I better stop. Love relativized everything else. Love took priority over everything else. Absolutely everything. This kind of love is the cure for egocentricity. This kind of love is the cure for egocentricity. This love takes me out of the center of my universe. It reminds us that the world doesn't revolve around us, our preferences or our preoccupations, with our images and our comforts. This kind of love allows us to say, I have one life, and when I leave here, I want to make sure this world is a little bit better because I was here. What might happen if we woke up every day and asked ourselves this? How can my existence on this earth increase the quality of life on this planet and those on it today? How can my existence today increase the quality of life for somebody else? That's the new commandment. That we love one another. This is So I would like to close with this simple thought that Jesus said the way we're going to know where God is is when we see one another loving. Where is God? Here. So when we stop loving, do we realize, and, and I know this may sound bizarre, But what has allowed us to picture God as somewhere else is a lack of love and compassion for people around us. Because as soon as you love your neighbor, God's there. You're seeing it. It's demonstrated. So the reality is God is with us. And it's messy and it's hard and you're going to get your heart broken and you're going to get stepped on and you're going to get betrayed and welcome to love. Jesus said to us, do you think it will be any different for you than it was for me? But we're not in it for ourselves because as soon as I'm in it for myself, my preference, my image, my comfort center again aren't i and love for my neighbor notice i did not say love for god Decenters us because you can love god and keep yourself at the center I, i'm really sorry to have to say this you can love god with all of your heart soul might and strength and keep yourself at the center because all of a sudden, the more you love God, the, then you realize the more I love God, the more God blesses me. And so, guess who's at the center of that relationship? I love God, so God blesses me. This is a good deal, you know. So you get the the one spot after the handicap spot at Walmart, and chalk it up to how much you love God. It's right living the green lights all the way from here through the other side of Plainfield and just chalk it up to good living. It's because of how much you love God. But when you make yourself late for somewhere you want to be because you pull over to give somebody a ride who's walking in the rain, who's at the center of that? So, I I would like to suggest that's Jesus' point when he says to us very clearly that the way that we know He's here is when love is at the center and how well we love one another. And He goes on to say, and this is how they will know that you are one. Thank you for listening to this message from Harvest House Church. For more information, find us online at Love.